ready? We are at the final vision of hell. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast, Walking with Dante, the only podcast that I know of that slow walks through Dante's masterwork comedy, and we have slowly got ourselves down to almost the very end. In fact, we are just moments away here in this passage from the end of Inferno, and we will get our last glimpse of hell in Canto 34, lines 46 through 69. If none of that makes any sense to you, (laughs) let's just say we've come a long way and there is a lot behind us. 213 episodes to be exact. So much sitting back behind us. Before we get started with the passage, I'd like to give a shout out to BT91106, to Bob from Cornwall, and to Hurricane Rain for their recent really nice reviews of this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for taking the time to do that. Otherwise, this is my English translation of the passage, lines 46 through 69 of Canto 34, as I said, of Inferno, and we've come to the back, the final glimpse of Satan. Under each of Satan's faces were two grandiose wings, big enough that they fitted a giant bird like this. I never saw any sails that big catch the ocean wind. They didn't have any feathers, but looked more like those of a bat. He was fanning them rather deliberately so that three separate winds moved away from him. That's why Cocytus was completely frozen over. He cried from his six eyes, and over his three chins the tears dripped down with his bloody slobber. In each mouth he chomped on a sinner with his teeth, like a hackle beating flax. That's how he kept these three in like-mannered torment. When it came to the one in front, that gnawing was nothing compared to the clawing, which meant that at times the skin was utterly flayed off of his spine. The soul up there who gets the grandest punishment, my master said, is Judas Iscariot. He's got his head stuck inside, his legs kick outside. Concerning the other two with their heads hanging down, the one who's dangling out of the black muzzle is Brutus. Look how he thrashes about, but doesn't utter a word. The other is Cassius with his muscular arms. But night is rising again above, and it's time for us to take our leave. For we've seen all there is to see. There is so much to say about this passage, about Judas, about Brutus, about Cassius, about the final revelation of what Satan is doing in hell and how Satan himself is part of the mechanics of hell itself. I'd like to talk about the images or similes used to describe Satan. I want to start with the first Felix Culpa, and we're going to have many of them. I'll explain what that means as we get to it. Many of them over the end of Canto 34. And finally, I'd like to end up talking about the three sinners stuck in Satan's three mouths, Judas Iscariot, Brutus, and Cassius. The passage begins, under each of Satan's faces 
were two grandiose wings big enough that they fitted a giant bird like this. Of course, we have to say that Satan has six wings, after all, two under each face. I mean, he is this weirdly inverted Trinitarian symbol. We have already seen devils as birds way back in Canto 21 at lines 29 through 33, we saw those demons with the barriters as birds flapping their wings so that they ran along the ground, barely touching it. Here's the biggest bird of them all. This bird is a very specific kind of bird. This is a seraph. Satan is most likely, in Dante's vision, a fallen seraph. How do I know that? Well, I have to go to the prophecies of Isaiah. And in chapter 6, Isaiah gets his big call from God. And the way he gets the call is he suddenly has a vision of God lifted up on God's throne. And these angels, the seraphim, I am being the plural in Hebrew, the seraphim flying in front of God. There, the angels do have six wings. Two covers their faces, two covers their body, and two makes them fly. Here, it seems like these wings don't have any purpose other than the construction of hell itself, as we'll talk about. Dante's invention... That's the three faces of Satan. He probably is riffing off a passage at the beginning of the prophecies of Ezekiel. There, the cherubim have four faces, highly symbolic what the faces are there. That leads us to think, given the Ezekiel passage, that those colors of the faces are symbolic, as we talked about a couple episodes ago in this podcast, but mostly (laughs) he's chewing on trees sinners. We'll get to that. Let's look at the second way Satan is described. So if I start at the front of the passage, this says, under each of Satan's faces were two grandiose wings, big enough that they fitted a giant bird like this. I never saw any sails that big catch the ocean wind. Okay, let's stop right there. This is emphasizing, without a doubt, Satan's lack of motion. This image for Satan is that his wings are like these big, billowing sails. I'll get to that billow in a minute. These big billowing sails that open out like a ship. But Satan is here in the ice and Satan is not going anywhere. It would be very strange to see a ship with big sails billowed out and it's not moving. That ship metaphor also connects us to what's come before us in Inferno and what is ahead of us in Purgatorio. We think instantly when we think of a ship catching the ocean wind of Ulysses amongst the false counselors and Ulysses setting sail, billowing out of the Mediterranean with his old man crew, setting out on one last grand adventure. Ulysses is an overreacher and Satan is an overreacher. We know from the biblical tradition that Dante believes that Satan was some kind of seraph or archangel who reached too high. (laughs) For Dante, he lifted an eyebrow, if you remember, at God. There's a second ship motif here. When we get across the canticle to the next one, Purgatorio, really early on, we're going to find that there is a ship guided by an angel that brings the redeemed to the shores of Mount Purgatory. This sail image here with Satan is both looking back in Inferno 
and it's looking at what's right ahead of us in Purgatorio. An interesting little crux in the passage. The passage goes on that his wings didn't have any feathers, but look more like those of a bat. Now, I want to stop right here. There are four sets of imagery that are used to describe Satan in Dante's Inferno. There was that windmill. We first saw Satan out on the horizon as if it's a windmill. Now we know what's happening. Those wings are turning. I want to talk about the turning in a minute, but they're turning. We've also seen Satan compared to a bird, then to a ship with its sails, and now to a bat. So those are our four images. They probably have a great deal of allegorical import behind them. Windmills draw water, and Cocytus is a basically waterless place given that it is all ice. We should also think that windmills in Dante's day hold back water to create land and hold back water in some fundamental way. And therefore, Satan is the final guardian before we begin our ascent to the heavens, the final place in which evil is held back or held out of the journey ahead of us. Birds, well, again, this is kind of a traditional image for both demons and angels. Sails, we talked about that. And bats, bats are interesting. In Aesop's fables, bats exist in a kind of median range. In the fable of the bat, the bat tricks the birds about the land, and there's this whole bit about how the bat is ultimately condemned to be both a land animal and a bird, so it fits in neither category and is always isolated and alone. It's neither bird nor land animal, but somehow in between. That's probably resonant here in this passage, that Satan is, to use a fancy word from American lit, an isolato, an isolated figure like Ahab, that Satan is a one-off set by himself like the bat, neither fish nor fowl, set in the middle of this very human landscape of suffering, yet Satan is from the heavens, so he's neither here nor there. He's somewhere right in the middle, the crack in the middle, which leaves him isolated. That's probably all floating around from Aesop behind this imagery that is used to describe the king of Dis. He's fanning himself deliberately while he's fanning his wings. He was fanning them deliberately so that three separate winds moved away from him. The word used here in the medieval Tuscan is vispistrello. As Singleton points out, this word means to billow, and it's often used of sails. We should think two things here. One, Satan's wings are not moving quickly. He's not frantic in any way. They are fanning. Think of like, oh, I don't know, somebody in a hot room with a fan. They're fanning back and forth. But also, because it's this metaphor billowing, there's an ironic inversion here. When a sail billows, a ship moves forward on the wind. But Satan is not using the wind. He's making the wind that freezes Cocytus over. This goes back, we talked about this a while ago. This goes back to this Aristotelian notion of ice as the loss of water because of 
wind, this kind of really weird medieval physics that we can't hardly make sense of anymore. This goes back to how the ice is created. But again, we should think about this as an ironic inversion. Vispistrello. These wings are billowing out and coming back in a kind of slow motion, but there is no motion to Satan. We talked about this earlier, about the lack of motion and why that is very important, but we should notice it here. No motion. Stasis. It's absolutely still except for this blowing wind. Three winds, an inversion of the Trinity, an inversion like his three faces of the Trinity, three separate winds, and they're blowing across Cocytus. This is our last glimpse in this line. That's why Cocytus was completely frozen over. That's your last backward glance at hell. It's as if the pilgrim has come to this point, is looking at Satan, looks back across the ice sheet. Let's pretend. It doesn't say this, but pretend we see the giants way off there in the distance at the cliff's edge before Cockatoo. It doesn't say that, but I'm going to say it. Why not? But it's a look back. It's a glance back, and this is the last glance of hell. This is a Felix culpa. Let me explain that. It's a Latin phrase. It means fortunate fall or good luck fall. What it means is that something bad has happened and God has turned it around to good. When Joseph gets uh, sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers because they're jealous of him over his many colored coat, eventually Joseph rises up in Pharaoh's kingdom, of course, rises up in Pharaoh's kingdom. His brothers undergo a famine in their land. They come to Egypt. They find their brother in a position of power and their brother offers the line to them, you meant it for evil, meant selling me into slavery in Egypt for evil, but God meant it for good. Felix culpa, something that was a fall, was meant for evil, but is actually good. That's what's happening here. Satan's static activity creates the punishment of the damned in Cocytus. Satan is stuck here in the ice. We'll talk more in the next episode of the podcast about how stuck he is, but stuck here in the ice. And the fanning of those wings creates the environment of the ninth ring of hell. So Satan is actively involved in creating, mm, creating, being the mechanics of the punishment of God against the treacherous. Uh, Felix culpa, a fortunate fall. Satan has fallen from heaven. We'll talk more about why a couple episodes ahead of us. Now here he is billowing his wings and creating the ice sheet, which we see one last time before turning our eyes to him. He cried from his six eyes, and over his three chins, the tears dripped down with his bloody slobber. This is probably a reference to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, verse 12. Here in this passage, a centurion comes to Jesus, and the centurion, the Roman centurion's servant, is sick or ill or perhaps dying. The centurion says to Jesus, please heal my servant. And uh, Jesus says, okay, you know, I'll come with you. And the centurion 
experience is, no, come on. I'm a centurion. I know how this works. When I say go, men go. When I say come, men come. You know, I give orders. I know how this works. And you're Jesus. So just say the word. Just speak it and my servant will be healed. And sure enough, Jesus is amazed by the centurion's faith. So Jesus speaks the word. The servant at afar is healed. And Jesus gives the line that a lot of people around the globe will hear this message of salvation and come to sup in the kingdom, but a lot won't, particularly those who won't are the ones who think they believe already. <laughs> so intriguing. What will happen to them is they will be thrown out into a place of darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's talk about this for a couple minutes. Let's look at it in a couple different ways. One, Jesus here seems to be saying that that place of post-death torment is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. We've really not seen much weeping and gnashing of teeth in hell up to this point. I mean, think back on it. If that's Jesus's vision of the punishing afterlife, we haven't really had too much gnashing. We've had some weeping, quite a bit of weeping, but not too much gnashing over the course of Inferno. And it's almost as if Dante has to get this in at the end has to make a gesture toward the New Testament concept of hell at the very end of Inferno. That sounds a little bit sarcastic on my part, and I don't mean it that way. Maybe he saved this description for the final moments in hell and saved this kind of classic weeping and gnashing of teeth until right here. We should also say that Satan is no general. The centurion comes to Jesus, and the centurion is an active Roman general. Satan is the king of a kingdom, but Satan can't move. Satan can't even get himself up to the walls of this. Satan as a king is a failure. What good would a king be, particularly in a medieval context when kings lead battle charges, what good would a king be nailed to his throne? There are a couple other ways to look at Satan's tears that are dripping down and combining with his bloody slobber, which we find out is actually from the chewing of the sinners in his mouth. There's a couple other ways to think about this. Remember, Satan has always been seen as an inversion or perversion of the crucifixion. And when Jesus is on the cross, a Roman guard stabs him with a spear. And from his side, Jesus' side, comes blood and water. Well, maybe that's an inversion here. Blood and water from Jesus's side, blood and water from Satan's mouths. Or maybe this is a reference way back in Inferno to the old man of Crete. Remember the statue inside the mountain of Crete and it's crying? Well, here we have another gigantic gigantic figure crying. And remember those tears from that statue make the rivers of hell? Well, Satan's tears are adding to the frozen river of hell that is here, this glacial sheet in Cocytus. So there are all kinds of references running around inside these tears dripping down with bloody slobber. We've done quite enough on that. Let's talk about the sinners in his mouths. In each mouth, he chomped on a sinner with his teeth. 
like a hackle beating Flex. That's how he kept these three in light mannered torment. When it came to the one in front, that gnawing was nothing compared to the clawing, which meant that at times the skin was utterly flayed off of his spine. The soul up there who gets the grandest punishment, my master said, is Judas Iscariot. He's got his head stuck inside, his legs kick out. Let's stop on Judas Iscariot. Of course. I don't want to make any assumptions, so let me just talk through Judas Iscariot. In the Christian story, Jesus is betrayed by Judas Iscariot. Jesus has 12 disciples. Judas is one of his disciples. Judas betrays Jesus in some accounts for money, in other accounts for other reasons. It's a little difficult to figure out Judas's motivation. Some accounts give him a, a demonic, you know, what do I want to say, possession. Others say he did it for money. It's a little difficult to pin down his motives in the Gospels. Exactly. But let's just say this. Judas is the big betrayer. And Judas, let's say, betrays Jesus to the Romans who then crucify him. Judas is the one who eats with Jesus at the last Passover, what Christians call the Last Supper. Jesus tells him to go out and do quickly what you have to do. He does. Jesus is arrested right after that and ultimately hangs himself, Judas does, or kills himself in some way. Notice something that's really strange in this passage. In each mouth, it says Satan chomped the center with his teeth like a hackle-beating flax. That is just so shocking. It's so agrarian, so rural, so pastoral. We get this idea of the way you pound flax or grain or hemp of some kind with a tool to make the chaff go away. It's so rural, so pastoral an image in such an infernal place as Satan chews on the sinners. I love that. That's so Dantean. The low, mixed up with the very high theology that's going on here. But there's probably a second problem in this passage with Judas. Well, maybe two problems. Well, maybe three. (laughs) How about three problems? Let's do two first. Okay, one, this eating of these sinners in Satan's mouth is probably an inversion of the Eucharist or communion. In Christian theology, the believers are commissioned to remember Jesus's death and resurrection, and they do this through a reenactment of sorts of the last Passover. And Jesus says when he institutes this as a ritual, he says, this is my body that is broken for you. Take, eat, and do this in remembrance of me when he breaks the matzah at the last Passover. And Christians now see this symbol of the bread as the broken body of Christ. Of course, in Roman Catholic tradition, the the host itself, the bread, has actually literally become the body of Christ. Well, given that, this is probably some kind of wild inversion of that. Satan is not partaking of the Last Supper, but he is chewing on the bodies. Well, the spirits, are they really bodies? Not sure, but okay, let's have it. On the bodies of these sinners, well, one of them has a spine. That's pretty bodily, right? So... So he's chewing on some kind of fleshy something, maybe, even though it's a spirit. And so it's some kind of inversion of the Last Supper in some fundamental way. We should also call attention to the fact that Judas has his head stuck inside Satan's mouth, which means his legs are kicking outside. There's a 
butt joke here. Judas is showing us his butt. There's a vulgar joke. Listen, it's Dante all the way to the end of Inferno. There's a vulgar joke here, a medieval vulgar joke, that somebody's got his butt out and it's sticking out of Satan's mouth. And, you know, I think we're supposed to kind of wink and smile because I think the poet is winking and smiling at us. There's one more butt joke to come in Inferno, but you're going to have to wait till the next episode for that. Okay, I said there were three problems. Well, there are. And here's my third one. And I want to tell you that before this episode uh, occurred, before I recorded it, I went down a long rabbit hole on this one. Judas is there. He's in the mouth of Satan. He's got his head in and his back out. Satan is gnawing on him, but he's also clawing him at the same time, which is a double punishment. And it says in the passage, which meant that at times the skin was utterly flayed off of his spine. This is the rabbit hole I went down. Spine. I want to talk about this with you. Come down the rabbit hole with me. It's kind of fun. Some critics say that this is an infernal parody of Jesus, that Jesus was uh, flayed on his way to the cross, whipped and flayed on his way to the cross, but he wasn't flayed. This is a flaying. The skin is being ripped off the spine and the musculature is being ripped off the spine. Jesus was beaten with whips. Yes, true enough, but flayed? No, 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 no. See, this is the problem. Sometimes you get an idea as a literary critic that, oh, let's say Satan is an inversion of the crucified Christ, and then you look for it in every single line, and maybe every single line doesn't relate to your notion. And I don't think this does. Instead, I think the emphasis here is on Judas's spine. And so this is the rabbit hole I went down. Why is Dante so interested that we see Judas's spine? Well, of course, a spine helps you stand upright. And even Dante in medieval anatomy would know this. Now, we we know that you much more stand up because of the muscles attached to your spine, more on that in a second, and because of your pelvic floor and because of your very fragile knee joints. But in medieval anatomy, a spine is kind of the erector set <laughs> of the human body. It's the construction that lets you stand up. If Judas's spine is always always exposed, then allegorically, we're seeing kind of the construction that allows a human to stand upright. And Judas is such a horrible traitor that the construction is being visible and wouldn't be very useful as just a spine. But there's more to it, I think, than that. Plato thought that the spine was always rigid and that it was only divine intervention that allowed the spine to Now, Dante didn't know Plato, so this can't be a part of Dante's thought, but trust me, I'm getting somewhere. Empedocles, another Greek philosopher, thought essentially that you were born with a fused spine and that the vertebra cracked over time and that it became the pieces of the vertebra as it is now, which allows it to bend because you're born or formed rigid and then it's cracked. Dante wouldn't know Empedocles either. But Dante might know Aristotle. And in On the Parts of the Animals, Aristotle makes the profound pronouncement 
that the spine moves because the muscles attached to it allow it to flex. There is no movement without those muscles attached to the spine. Now, you and I both know that. But for Aristotle, who is studying human anatomy and animal anatomy in on the parts of the animals, this is a bit of a revelation. It's not the spine spine that makes you move and twist and gives you forward momentum. It's the muscles attached to it. And so if Satan is chewing everything until the spine of Judas is visible, that means Judas in an Aristotelian conception cannot move either. There's no muscles to allow flexion, to allow turning and twisting. That means, according to Aristotle, with no muscles attached to the spine, there's no forward momentum. So Judas is just like Satan, stuck, cannot move. At the center of the universe is stasis as reflected in the spine. And maybe we can draw this out to an anagogical reading, a spiritual reading of the passage, and say that the final state of evil is the potential is gone. There's not even the potential to movement. Instead, there's just what could be part of the movement without even the potential left. The final stop of evil is that motion and potential have both been eradicated and you're just left with a spine. Just think about that for a minute. Think about how that works in the context of evil doing, of people who do heinous acts, that finally they might get to the point where even the potential for momentum is lost. Let's move on and talk about the other two in Satan's mouth. <laughs> so much more to talk about. Concerning the other two with their heads hanging down, the one who's dangling out the black muzzle is Brutus. Look how he thrashes about but doesn't utter a word. Marcus Junius Brutus, born about 85 BCE, died 42 BCE. This is the great traitor, of course, who is one of the assassins of Julius Caesar. Marcus Junius Brutus sided with Pompey in the great civil wars and, in fact, was part of the defeat at Pharsalus when Pompey goes down against Julius. But Julius, when he becomes Caesar, pardons Brutus, so much so that Brutus moves into Julius's inner circle. From there, of course, Brutus, who apparently all of his life very much upheld the ideals of the Roman Republic, opposed the imperial designs of Julius, saw himself as some kind of savior of Republican ideals, and struck Caesar down. But notice that there's a problem in this passage. There's Brutus. He's sticking out of Satan's mouth. We'll talk about why in a minute. He's sticking out of Satan's mouth, and he thrashes about but doesn't utter a word, thereby reminding us of Ferranata and reminding us of Jason, these two figures who seem to hold the punishments and torments and pains of hell in contempt. One last little vision of humanity doesn't utter a word. One last stoic moment. Now, you could say to me, wait a minute, this is about motion it's about forward momentum. And in a poem, words are forward momentum. And because Brutus doesn't utter a word, he can't be a poet. There can't be any poetic forward momentum. Fair enough. 
The other way to read the passage is to say that Dante is a little conflicted here, that he gives Brutus just a little bit of humanity, that he gives him just a little way to rise above the pains of hell. Why? Because there is a distinct complication in Dante's stance. Here's the problem. We've got two conspirators here in Satan's mouth, Brutus and Cassius. We're about to meet another co-conspirator in purgatory. How can we have two co-assassins here, and we're going to meet another one really soon in Purgatorio. Wait a minute. How come that one's not down here getting chewed alive? Oh, so complicated because Dante himself is like Brutus. Dante holds to the ideals of the Republic, and Julius is a very complicated figure for him. As in Lucan's Pharsalia, Julius is a complicated figure, a hero, a grand human, a grand warrior, and yet at the same time, grabbing power for personal gain and overrunning the much more virtuous Pompey, overrunning the Republic with its ideals to institute an empire. But without that empire, there would be no Jesus born in Bethlehem for Dante. So you see, it's very complicated. Let's look at the other assassin here in Satan's mouth. The other is Cassius with his muscular arms, Virgil says. This is Gaius Cassius Longinus. This is, again, one of the assassins of Julius, again, sided with Pompey, but again was pardoned by Caesar. We know Cassius from Shakespeare. Well, you know, look at Cassius. What is it? Lean and hungry look. Such men are dangerous in Julius Caesar from Shakespeare. But that's not this Cassius. This Cassius is incredibly muscular for some reason. And in fact, I want to tell you that that has bedeviled commentators for 700 years. Why is Cassius so buff? Why is he beefed up here in hell? Singleton says that the muscles have been laid bare because the skin has been stripped off. I don't see that in the passage. I see the way Judas's skin is scraped off. But I don't see it here. Is this another strange moment of heroism? Like Brutus is not uttering a word. Cassius is this kind of larger-than-life, almost Greco-Roman statue. Dante wouldn't know much about Greco-Roman statuary, but you know what I mean. This kind of larger-than-life, heroic, athletic figure. Is he also allowed a moment of contradiction here in Satan's Mount? It's curious, and I want to tell you, it's just bedeviled commentators for 700 years, and nobody has come up with a decent answer for why Cassius is buff. I've danced around it. We might as well talk about it. These are the last three great sinners, Judas, Brutus, and Cassius. Notice Judas, of course, well, we would expect that in a Christian poem, but Brutus and Cassius, these two down here, two Roman assassins and one disciple who betrayed the Messiah, that's the end of hell. It is curious, but we should think about Dante. Dante thinks that the Roman Empire is divinely willed. He's picking that up from Virgil and the Aeneid. Dante hopes that the Holy Roman Empire, the last dregs of any kind of Roman rule, the Holy Roman Empire, will come down and set things right in central Italy. They don't. Dante hopes for some balance between state and church. 
He's not going to get it. The church is in Avignon. There's hardly any balance going at all in Dante's day. But the final vision is of religious treachery and political treachery. And political treachery gets twice the weight. Maybe religious treachery gets the worst punishment, but after all, there are two political figures here. If you didn't think until now, how could you not? If you didn't think that Inferno was political, now you surely know it is political. And Dante sees the establishment of government as part of a divinely sanctioned plan. We'll talk so much more about this when we get way up in Paradiso. But the idea is that the church and the state should balance each other, and the church should have no property, no money, and the state should have no ability to grant forgiveness or to grant any of the church's rights. And that way they should always be in balance with each other. And here we see a sort of balance with a tip to the double Roman conspirators. The last lines of the passage. But Virgil says, night is rising again above, and it's time for us to take our leave, for we've seen all there is to see. We're at the exact midpoint of Canto 34, and we come to the end of the journey of hell. We see that it is nightfall on Saturday of Easter weekend, according to Virgil, which means that this journey has taken essentially one day. It is on the evening of Good Friday that they enter hell. It is now nightfall on Saturday. It's taken us essentially a day to get down here. And it's going to take us a day to get out, but that's ahead of us. Let's just say that we have come to the midpoint of the canto and we get this unbelievably redolent and unbelievably wild line. It's time for us to take our leave, for we've seen all there is to see. Let's just stop. Think about that line. Virgil just told us it's done. We've seen all of hell. There's nothing left here for us. We've experienced it. We've seen it. What else can we do? We've got to walk on. We're going to walk on, but for now, let's just revel in that line, for we've seen all there is to see. I don't know that I've ever gotten to that place. I don't know that I've ever said of Paris, I've seen all there is to see. Or I don't know that I've ever gotten to the point in, I don't know, the national parks in Utah and Arizona. I've seen all there is to see. I've never gotten my fill. But it seems here as if Virgil is signaling that the pilgrim should now have his fill. He should have seen everything. He's been writing it down in his little notebook, remember, so that someone can check it. Mm, She's ahead of us. Someone can check it. And we've seen all there is to see. What a great final moment from Virgil. An emphasis on sight, an emphasis on the human senses, an emphasis on sight leading to understanding, an emphasis on actually seeing the world around you and not just passing through it. What a great and final moment, our last seconds in hell. 
this has been a very long episode of the podcast Walking with Dante, but I suppose I should give it a read again without any funny voices, without any sound effects or anything. We should just read through lines 46 through 69 of Canto 34. Again, this is on my website, markscarborough.com. You can find it there, print it off, make notes on my translation. I think I really would be flattered if you made notes on my translation. Or you can even drop comments there. Here's the passage. Under each of Satan's faces were two grandiose wings, big enough that they fitted a giant bird like this. I never saw any sails that big catch the ocean wind. They didn't have any feathers, but looked more like those of a bat. He was fanning them rather deliberately so that three separate winds moved away from him. That's why Cocytus was completely frozen over. He cried from his six eyes over his three chins. The tears dripped down with his bloody slobber. In each mouth, he chomped on a center with his teeth like a hackle beating flax. That's how he kept these three in like-mannered torment. When it came to the one in front, that gnawing was nothing compared to the clawing, which meant that at times the skin was utterly flayed off of his spine. The soul up there who gets the grandest punishment, my master said, is Judas Iscariot. He's got his head stuck inside, his legs kick outside. Concerning the other two, with their heads hanging down, the one who's dangling out of the black muzzle is Brutus. Look how he thrashes about, but doesn't utter a word. The other is Cassius, with his muscular arms. But the night is rising again, and it's time for us to take our leave. For we've seen all there is to see. But we haven't. We've still got more to see because how do you get out of here? You've walked to the very center of the earth. How do you get out of this spot? Well, that's up next on the next episode of Walking with Dante. So subscribe to this podcast. Rate it if you would. That would be terrific. Thank you so much for those ratings and those likes. They really do help with the analytics. I should say that I am very grateful for the sheer number of downloads this podcast is getting. It's amazing. We are getting lots of people walking with us, and it's kind of shocking. I'm really thrilled that all of this work from all of us has paid off because you've worked too. You have worked this walk with me. Thank you for being there for it. We've seen it all, but there's a lot more to see. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Tate. And I will see you for the climb out of hell.